verses uh, 1 through 10. Let's now uh, hear uh, God's word. Then after 14 years, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, Uh, To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager uh, to do. This ends this reading uh, in God's holy word. Let's now once again seek God's face in prayer before we hear God's word preached. Lord, our God in heaven, uh, this is your holy word. This is not the word of man, but is in truth the Word of God. We gather today not to hear simply the voice of a man, but to hear the voice of one proclaiming the Word of God, indeed to hear Christ's voice himself speaking to our souls. Lord, come and minister to our hearts and grant us the grace that we would believe everything that you tell us and that we would obey everything that you command of us. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, if something is very valuable to us, uh, we seek to defend it, to guard it, uh, to protect it. Some of you children probably have a favorite toy, and you know right where it is. You don't want it to be taken by anybody. Well, those of us that are a little older perhaps keep some of our valuables in a specific spot in a house, perhaps even like in a, in a fireproof safe, so that if something happens, we still have those things defended or protected. Uh, our reputations matter to us. And so when somebody slanders us or speaks untruth, we desire to protect those reputations. If our family is threatened, we want to defend our family. When the nation in which we live and the nation that we love were to be attacked, we would come to its defense. We defend or protect those things that are valuable to us. And this, dear brothers and sisters, is why the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be defended. Well, there's a sense in which uh, the gospel needs no defense. I think it was Charles Spurgeon uh, who once uh, said, uh, defend the Bible? Well, I would sooner defend a lion. Uh, Just let it out, and it will defend itself. And that's true about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. We aren't its protectors in that sense. 
But the gospel does need to be defended in this sense. That there is a constant temptation for the church to lose the gospel. To substitute something else in its place. To add to it. Or to detract from it. Or to replace it. And indeed, as I said, I think a couple of weeks ago, the greatest danger of the church in every age is that it would lose the gospel. The church no longer preaches the gospel. It is no church at all. And that, dear friends, was the threat that was facing this church in Galatia. If you'll notice the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 1 that we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Oh foolish Galatians, Paul says, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Or in chapter 1 in verse 6, I am astonished, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. The threat which was facing the church in Galatia, as it faces the people of God today, is that we would lose that proclamation of the only gospel that saves And so Paul, in this book, gives a defense of the gospel. And his defense in the book of Galatians has many different um, aspects uh, to it. In chapters 3 and 4 that we'll eventually get to, uh, you'll see there's kind of a, a theological aspect to his defense, especially showing the doctrine of justification uh, from the Old Testament to now. In chapters 5 and 6, there's going to be kind of a, a practical defense Uh, of the gospel. But here, in the first two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, there is a kind of uh, what we might call either historical or even biographical defense of this gospel. Uh, You may remember a a couple of weeks ago in chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, uh, Paul explained his own story, how he himself was called by this gospel. And he was made an apostle, uh, not by man's authority, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, now as we come to Galatians chapter 2, we are going to see Paul continuing this same story in which he gives his own history of uh, being called as an apostle and of the acceptance of this gospel that he is is preaching uh, among the apostles in Jerusalem. So, uh, with that as by way of introduction, the defense of the gospel, the defense of the gospel, especially now in the history that Paul gives, uh, we're going to open these ten verses together. And I want to open them today really under five different headings uh, that will kind of chart our course as we walk through this passage. Uh, First of all, we're going to see a trip embarked on. Secondly, a threat encountered. Third, a person set forth. Fourth, a gospel accepted. And fifth, a mission embraced. A trip embarked on, a threat encountered, a person set forth, a gospel accepted, and a mission embraced in the defense of this gospel that is given uh, to the Galatians. So first of all, I want us to consider a trip that is embarked on. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 2, Paul picks up the story that he had spoken of earlier. Do you remember uh, last time he told us how he was uh, supernaturally converted and called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, not by man, but by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he takes great pains to show that he had very little contact at first with the church in Jerusalem. Uh, that he had been, after being converted, had spent around three years in Arabia, around Damascus. 
that he then escaped the plots of the Jews. We saw by comparing it with Acts chapter 9, that was when Paul was uh, lowered in a basket down through the wall in Damascus. And then at that point, he went briefly to Jerusalem uh, to become acquainted with Peter and to meet James. Uh, That's the visit that is recorded in Acts 9 and verses 26 and following. Uh, Then, after leaving there, he is sent to Caesarea and to Tarsus, uh, where he engages in an additional preaching ministry. And when we pick up the story here at the beginning of chapter 2, we are immediately given a time indicator. Then, after 14 years, this is likely 14 years from the moment that he was converted, which means that after those three years in Arabia, he spent an additional 11 years teaching and preaching. That now, after 14 years, he goes up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus with him. Well, why is it that he went up? Well, he tells us here it was because of a revelation. And there in Jerusalem, by the direction of Almighty God, he goes and sets before the apostles that are there this gospel that he was being preached. Now, uh, the question is sometimes raised. Uh, Commentators have spilt loads of ink on this question. We're going to spend just a couple of minutes and no more. Uh, But the question has sometimes been raised, well, which visit to Jerusalem is being spoken of here in uh, Galatians chapter 2? Is this Paul's second visit to Jerusalem, uh, the one described in Acts 11, verses 27 through 30, where he took a gift to the poor who had suffered from a severe famine? Or is this describing Paul's third visit to Jerusalem, uh, the one that takes place after his first missionary journey and the founding of the churches of Galatia, the one the visit to Jerusalem that is famously described as that a Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, where the apostles and elders officially decided whether the Gentiles were to be received into the church as Gentiles. So which visit is it? Well, uh, the similarity of theme uh, would make one to think that this is speaking of the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15. Uh, Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem. They are opposed by false brothers. And there it is decided the validity of their mission to the Gentiles. And many commentators think that that is the visit that is being described. Uh, However, there do seem to be some significant differences between what is described in Acts 15 and here in Galatians 2. Acts 15 is a public deliberation resulting in a public decree. Uh, Galatians 2 seems to describe a private deliberation with no decree, but rather simply the right hand of fellowship. In Acts 15, Paul goes to Jerusalem sent by the church at Antioch. Here in Galatians 2, he goes because of God's revelation to him. And so for these reasons and a couple of others, I tend to think, along with many modern commentators, that probably Paul's visit in Galatians chapter 2 is the earlier one that is described in Acts chapter 11. Though I can say that I don't know with full certainty, and I don't think any of us know with full certainty exactly which visit is being uh, described. There are answers each way. I could spend an hour going through this in much more detail, but that's enough because simply to say we don't need to know with certainty (laughs) which visit it is in order for Galatians 2 that we've read today to make sense. The interpretation still remains. Paul's words Uh, still remains. The the point is that Paul embarks on this trip to Jerusalem by God's supernatural direction in order to present this gospel that he's been preaching to the apostles that are there. So that is a trip embarked on. But now let's secondly move on uh, with some more application here to secondly a threat encountered. 
a threat encountered. Uh, We're going to get to verse 3 under the next point, but you'll notice verses 4 and 5 that when he then arrives at Jerusalem, he is met there not only by the apostles and by the church in Jerusalem, but he describes there some false brothers as well who were secretly brought in. They are brothers, that is, by profession, they claim to be Christians, but they are false brothers because they proclaimed a different gospel, which Paul makes clear is no gospel at all. And if anyone preaches it, verse 9 of chapter 1, let him be accursed. So these are false brothers. And the language that he uses to describe what they've done is the language really of enemy espionage, and covert operations. They were secretly brought in. They slipped in to spy out our freedom so that they might bring us again into slavery. Paul viewed these false teachers as enemies of the gospel and of the church. Uh, Now, We've come to call this group of false teachers uh, Judaizers. You're going to hear that word some in our series on Galatians. We call them Judaizers because they taught that people had to become Jewish in order to be Christians. In other words, they believed that Paul's gospel was only halfway correct that you have to believe that Christ is the Messiah in order to be saved, but that isn't enough. Circumcision was also needed. But not only circumcision, but the keeping as well of the entire Mosaic law. And so their teaching was Christ plus the Torah. Uh, They believed that Paul's gospel was a kind of a secondhand abbreviated version And it wasn't enough. It needed to be supplemented uh, with something else. And so that's what they were, uh, that's what they were coming and teaching uh, uh, the Galatians. Uh, Now, some people might, uh, even many people today, might view this so-called threat as really something rather uh, harmless. Why are we all getting worked up about this? Doesn't this uh, concern kind of the minutiae of of religion? Well, these Judaizers, it's to be expected. They have their traditions that are meaningful to them. Let them be. If they want to teach this, well, that's okay. Why is Paul getting so worked up about it? And he is, isn't he? Paul doesn't view this as harmless at all. Uh, In fact, verse 5, he says, Uh, We did not yield in submission even for a moment. He saw them from the beginning, not as as, uh, people bringing a different perspective. We need to compromise and come to a common agreement. But rather, he saw them as enemies of the gospel and the truth of the gospel needed to be defended and uh, and we needed to stand firm in it. And the reason that Paul viewed this as such a dangerous threat And it's the reason that you and I should view a similar kind of teaching as such a dangerous threat. It is because as soon as you add absolutely anything at all to the work of Christ as being necessary to salvation, you denigrate Christ's work and you bring God's freely redeemed people back into slavery. The good news of the gospel, and we're going to be opening this up as we get into chapters 3 and chapters 4, is that Christ, by His death, bore the curse of our sin in its entirety. And so that if our salvation depends on our works, our works are never enough and bring us under the wrath of God. But rather, it is through faith in Jesus Christ A faith that looks not to ourselves, but to Him alone as the object of our our salvation. A faith which grasps Jesus Christ in the completeness of all of His saving work. It is that and that alone which saves 
a lost sinner. And the point of the whole Old Testament ceremonial law and worship was to point forward to Jesus Christ. It wasn't to provide another way of salvation or additional requirements, but rather it was given to the church under age that she might look ahead to this Redeemer. And once the Redeemer has come, we need not the shadows and types of the Old Covenant any longer. And so Paul is saying this is a matter of the utmost importance that true and saving religion is always Christ plus nothing else. He is willing to call anything which would threaten that gospel, that which is dangerous and false, and that to which we ought not and must not yield. So dear brothers and sisters, even today, we need to have a kind of Paul-like zeal for the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we have here is not just one religious opinion among many, not one perspective among many, but the only gospel that saves. Because, dear friends, as soon as you add absolutely anything else to Jesus Christ, Christ is no longer a full Savior for sinners. And so it must not be Christ plus our own traditions, Christ plus our own uh, political views, Christ plus our own methods of, uh, child, uh, methods of child rearing or of organizing a family. Uh, it must not be Christ plus a certain kind of culture. Dear friends, to be saved is Christ plus nothing. It is to look to Him alone. The main goal of religion, dear friends, is that we would embrace Jesus Christ by faith for salvation. It's not that Christ would be a means to something else, a means to us living a a more successful life or a happier life or a sense of greater fulfillment. That's the way that so many people view religion in our days in those kind of psychologized terms. Uh, Well, do whatever works for you, whatever gives you happiness, whatever gives you peace. Well, dear friends, that's to add something to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, the truth of the gospel is always Christ plus nothing else. It is a threat that they encountered. But now thirdly, let's move on uh, to a person that is set forth. So as Paul goes to Jerusalem, he faces the threat of the Judaizers. Uh, We are told this in verse 3, that that he had brought Titus with him. Now Titus, Uh, was one of the early converts to Christianity. He was not a Jew, but a Greek. And so, Titus would not have been circumcised. Now, Barnabas, who came with them, was a Jew. Titus, Paul, was a Jew. Titus, though, was a Greek. And he brings, now, Titus as uncircumcised into Jerusalem. Think for a moment what a bold thing this was for Paul to do. Uh, Jerusalem, the, uh, the holy city of, of the Jews, and circumcision was, was such a central thing. A circumcision, that removal of the foreskin, had been since Abraham the mark of Jewish identity. It was commanded of God in the Old Testament. It was a symbol of salvation. If anyone under the Old Covenant was to be part of God's people, he must receive the sign of of circumcision. It was a non-negotiable. But here, walking into Jerusalem with Paul, comes Titus, and Titus is uncircumcised. It would have created a stir. Now, why did Paul do this? Was he being kind of um, needlessly provocative? You know, one of these people that just always likes to stir up trouble. Well, the answer is no. It wasn't a needless provocation. But rather, what Paul was doing was showing in the person of Titus what the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ can do for somebody. Here was a person who was saved by Jesus Christ. 
who bore all the marks of salvation, but who was never circumcised. Here was one for whom the love of God had been shed abroad in his heart. Here was one who was looking in faith to Jesus Christ alone. Here was one who would be a pastor, and Paul would later call him a true child in a common faith. Here is Titus, whose sins are atoned for by the blood of Christ, who is justified by that blood, who is adopted as a child of God, who now has the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, and who is producing all of the fruit of salvation. Here is Titus, who has, lay, who has laid hold of all the promises of eternal life. Titus comes in as a fully redeemed Christian and yet uncircumcised. And Paul is, is in essence saying, look at this man. Is he lacking anything that he needs? That's what he's saying. Does this man, Titus, lacking anything? In other words, he's saying, are you possibly saying that none of this is legitimate for him? unless he is also circumcised. That he cannot be a Christian having experienced the grace of God in the way that he has experienced it, unless this Greek person also becomes a Jew. You see, Titus was in his person a kind of apologetic or defense of what the true gospel was. Here is a man who, yet uncircumcised, bears all the marks of one who is changed by the grace of God. Do you see, Paul is, Paul is making this point. That once the Lord Jesus Christ has come, circumcision then becomes a kind of cultural matter. It's of no spiritual significance any longer. Circumcision pointed ahead to Jesus Christ and to his work. Christ has come. And so circumcision now becomes a kind of cultural matter. And Paul is saying, for you to be a Christian, you don't need to change your culture as well. This man who is a Greek does not need to cease being a Greek in order to be a child of God, loved by Jesus Christ. And what a crucial point this is uh, for uh, the mission of the church, is it not? That the mark of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ not becoming a different culture. Now, to be a Christian, you need to leave sin behind. But you don't need to leave your culture behind. Isn't that just wonderful news? Because even in an assembly like this, and indeed, as if we were to gather the Christians that are converted all uh, throughout the world, we have a wonderful display of the various cultures of this world. People that speak different languages with different accents. People that have different uh, demeanors. People who like different kinds of, of food. People who even just kind of process the world in a, in a, in a certain way. Some more emotional, others uh, more more stoic, uh, we have uh, our own ways of, of talking and of, and of living. And uh, the point of uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is uh, come to Jesus Christ and be changed by Him, but you're not changed into just a, a certain cultural mode, but rather you're changed into the likeness of the Son of God. That's who you're changed into. That's what it means to be a Christian. So whatever cultural background you come from, the gospel doesn't say that that needs to change. Well, suddenly to be a, a Presbyterian, oh, I need to become Scottish, or to be Reformed, I need to be Dutch, or something like that. No, not at all. Praise the Lord that there are Scottish people and Dutch people who love the Lord Jesus, but praise uh, the Lord that there are Puerto Rican and Chinese uh, people and Brazilian people and people from Nigeria with all of uh, uh, their own culture that become Christians as well. And that's the good news. That's the good news that we have, even in the example of somebody like a Titus. He comes into Jerusalem as a changed man by Jesus Christ, not changing his culture. 
but rather being changed into the likeness of the Son of God. Now let's move on. Fourthly, we've seen now a a person set forth. We now see a gospel that is accepted. A gospel that is accepted. Uh, Verses 6 through 9 then record for us what Paul does when he um, meets with uh, the apostles that are in Jerusalem. Now, one thing that you perhaps noticed uh, in this passage was the kind of interesting way uh, in which Paul spoke of the apostles in Jerusalem. Verse 2, he speaks of them as those who seemed influential. Uh, Verse 6, again, those who seemed to be influential, but what they were makes no difference to me. Again, verse 6, those who seemed influential added nothing uh, to me. Okay, and verse 9, James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars. What is Paul doing with this language? These are kind of strange expressions. And he would actually be the first to note that these these actually are apostles. Uh, He said as much in verse, uh, where is it? Verse uh, verse 19 of of chapter 1. What's Paul doing by this kind of language? Well, I don't think he's um, denigrating them. Rather, I think he's doing a couple of other things. First, he's doing this. He's making the point that these Jerusalem apostles, as well as the church of Jerusalem, does not have a kind of higher rank or a primacy of place. It's not that Christianity has to first be filtered through the church at Jerusalem before it goes on to everybody else. Where does Paul make it clear that the gospel came from? It came from Jesus Christ, who gave it to his apostles, those at Jerusalem and to Paul himself, who preached this gospel. But it was not that everything comes through the church at Jerusalem. And that's kind of what the Judaizers were saying. Well, it's the church at Jerusalem. That has the primacy of place. Kind of like the the Roman Catholic Church says, well, it's the church of Rome. Things come through the bishop of Rome. No, not at all. But rather, they come from the Lord Jesus through His apostles that we have in in Holy Scripture now. So the gospel wasn't simply Jerusalem's gospel to distribute. I think that's the one point that Paul's making. But I think he's also making a second point in this interesting language that he uses. He is also drawing attention here to the esteem that the Judaizers gave to these men. He's saying those who seem to be influential, those who seem to be pillars, and I think what he's what he's doing here is is drawing his attention to what the Judaizers themselves were saying about these men. They lifted up the church at Jerusalem, and Paul is now saying, it is these whom you have so esteemed that have now accepted the gospel that I have been preaching. And why did they accept it? Well, it was because they recognized that it was God's gospel and not theirs. You see that in verses 8 and 9. The the emphasis on God's work. He who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry. In other words, God worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Or again, verse 9, when James and Cephas and John perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave me the right hand of fellowship. You see, they recognized that it wasn't their gospel to give, but that it was God's. And they together agreed on the truth of the gospel that Paul uh, preaches. You know, I think uh, sometimes today, uh, the impression is given that uh, within the early church, that there were various competing Christian messages that were incompatible with one another. If you've ever heard of an author named Bart Ehrman, this is what he's saying. That within the early church, there were various competing versions of Christianity that were incompatible with one another. 
And what ended up happening was just that the more powerful one won out. And so even you'll hear it popularly today. Well, John disagreed with Paul, who disagreed with James. And then, and then there's things like the Gospel of Thomas uh, and, and other things like that. There were various accountings, various theologies in the uh, it, 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 originally that were all competing with one another, various regional things centered around different people. And, you know, it just at the end of the day, it was just the more powerful one won out. How different that is of the conception that is given us truly in Holy Scripture, where we see here that there was no disagreement at all among the apostles of our Lord over what the gospel of Jesus Christ really was. James and Cephas and John in Jerusalem and Paul and his Gentile mission together agreed on what the gospel of Jesus Christ really was. And when we read through the New Testament, we read language like the form of sound words that had been given or the faith that was once delivered to the saints or Paul saying, for that which I received, I also deliver unto you. And it's the idea that there was a gospel message which was believed and embraced by the true church of Jesus Christ that then is defended against all enemies. That's the clear uh, impression that is, that is given here. And so that ought to assure our faith, dear friends, that the, that the teaching that we have in Holy Scripture is nothing less than the gospel that was embraced not just by one apostle as opposed to others, but was embraced uh, by uh, the true apostles of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And this moves us on then, as we've seen a gospel accepted, now fifth and finally, dear friends, to a mission embraced. And this is really, at this point here, is why this is all so important. We see this in verses 8 and 9 and 10. For there he speaks that the same God who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. That is, James and Cephas and John gave to me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles, that they should go to the circumcised. And here, dear friends, we are having before our eyes a kind of biblical vision laid, uh, laid out for us. That what the mission of the church of Jesus Christ is, is to take the one gospel of Jesus to all the peoples of the earth. Because God has a saving purpose, not for one ethnic group, at one place, at one time, but has a saving purpose through Jesus Christ for all peoples of every language, everywhere, at all times. And that's what they laid hold of. That what we had here in the, in the first century wasn't, well, Paul had to find his own way and develop his own ministry to kind of reach the Gentiles with his own message, but, well, Cephas and James and the others ministering to the Jews, well, they could, they could have their own message to the Jewish people that would attract them. And similarly today, we don't give one message to uh, millennials and another message to an older uh, generation. And we don't have to come up with a different message for uh, ministry to this place. It's not my job to build my ministry in my own way. Not any of your jobs to build your own ministry in your own way, but rather, what are we? Dear friends, we are a branch of the one church of Jesus Christ that proclaims the only gospel that saves. We aren't the whole church here. Dear friends, the Presbyterian Church in America is not the whole church of Jesus Christ. We are a branch of the one church of Jesus Christ that proclaims the only gospel that saves and the defining mark of whether a church is a true church is, is it proclaiming this gospel? That's what it is. And so yes, Paul went to the Gentiles with the gospel. Peter went to the Jews with the same gospel. 
today, the church of Jesus Christ continues to go to a world that is lost and is in need of the only Savior that can save them, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we bring that gospel to them. And that's why Paul was concerned in verse 2. He says, this gospel that I was proclaimed, that, that I proclaimed, I, I wanted to do it in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in, in vain. I don't think Paul was there uncertain whether he had the true gospel. But what Paul was concerned about was that the church of Jesus Christ together would embrace and not lose this only gospel that saves. So that as it were, Paul would be doing his ministry, not in his own way, but the gospel of Jesus, just as the others would, as it were, have the baton passed to them and and continue with this same ministry that we might continue to do it uh, today. And uh, verse 10, the only thing they ask, remember the poor, they say. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ is one and one part lifts up another and where there is need, well, we remember the need that is in our midst. But dear friends, we we go full speed ahead with this only gospel. Might the Lord help us to do that. Dear friends, there is a gospel that is worth defending. There is a gospel that we dare not lose. There is only one gospel that saves. But praise God for it. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for the vision that Revelation gives. That, O Lord, our God, that there is going to be on that final day a church of Jesus Christ, indeed, an innumerable multitude from every nation and tribe and people and languages that are going to be standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they are going to be crying out, not that their own works have saved them, Not that they have found their own way to God, but rather they are going to be proclaiming in thanksgiving to the one who has saved them from their sins. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The Lord our God, we thank you for bringing us to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. And we pray for the grace in our day, O Lord, not to adjust the gospel, not to change it, but to believe it and to proclaim it to a world that desperately needs to be saved by Christ. Lord, grant that we do this. Build and strengthen your church in our day. And bless us now as we come to the Lord's table and receive the bread and wine and partake of them, remembering Christ and all of his work for us. And we pray all of this now in Jesus' name. uh, Amen. Well, in preparation to come to the table, uh, we're going to sing of the wonders of God's grace in the gospel. Uh, It's hymn number 351, How Deep the Father's Love uh, for Us. And we'll sing stanzas one and two. Oh, <laughs> 
We do come to the Lord's uh, table today where we remember that what a great cost it was that the Lord has saved us from our sins and called us to eternal life in Him. I'm going to read for us the words of institution that are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Well, we come today to this meal, which is a glorious celebration of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He, uh, before he uh, was crucified, uh, he commanded his disciples to remember this meal until that time when they shall eat it again with him uh, in that kingdom of heaven. Lord uh, And the Lord has uh, uh, continually brings us back to this bread and to this wine to remember uh, that our only hope is in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing at all. He is our Savior. He is the one that our souls need. And so I invite to this table today all you who know yourself to be a sinner, who are looking in faith uh, to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And if you have made a profession of that faith and are a member in good standing of the church uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of uh, not this particular church necessarily, but uh, any gospel preaching church, then we invite you today to come uh, to this table. Come and welcome. Might your souls be fed as you commune with Christ. Uh, But if you are not looking in faith to Jesus Christ uh, today, or if you have not been baptized or are not a member uh, uh, of a church where Jesus Christ is preached, don't come to this table today, but might it soon be that you would embrace Christ and identify yourself with the Lord's uh, people and join us soon at this table. Let's now Look to the Lord in prayer before we partake together. Lord, our God in heaven, we give you thanks for this uh, gospel meal uh, that feeds not our stomachs, but feeds our souls. For the one upon whom we feed by faith is none other than the living bread, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the one from whom comes rivers of living water. O Lord, our God, come and feed us, we pray. Remind us of the sufficiency of Jesus' work and make us to delight in Him as our only Savior and to commit ourselves afresh, not to any substitute gospel, but to the only gospel that saves. And we pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. As I, uh, after, as I have given thanks, and give it now unto you uh, in his name. And he said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this now in remembrance of me. And as you take the bread, you can hold on to it, and we'll eat it together at my direction.
Brothers and sisters, let us eat of the bread uh, together. In the same manner, also after supper, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his uh, disciples, and he said that this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Uh, drink from it, all of you. And again, we will uh, drink together at my direction. The inner circle of the plate has wine. The outer circle is grape juice. in Him should not perish, uh, but have everlasting life. Let us drink of the cup together. Let's pray. Lord our God in heaven, we thank You for the shed blood of our Savior. Apart from it, Lord, there is no uh, remission of sin. No, Lord, but with it we have been joyfully forgiven and renewed, uh, and uh, we come to know you as our reconciled God. O Lord, our God, bless us as we go from this place to live in light of this one gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, uh, amen. Well, we're going to take up now our deacon's offering. This offering goes to support uh, those in our church and outside of our congregation with temporal needs. This one thing. He was encouraged to remember to support uh, the poor. Uh, So let us do it. Here, actually.
Let us now stand and sing. We're going to sing the final stanza of hymn 351. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.